Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Growing up with Dr. Sarah. I love the fall because then it means when Halloween is over and we're approaching Thanksgiving that Christmas is coming and then we have a wonderful new year to think about as well. But as the cold starts to come in our neighborhoods, so does the teacher conferences. And I think by now, many of you have already had your teacher conference or are looking forward to it in the next coming week. Many children struggle with reading, and I've read several estimates as far as how many actually have difficulties with reading, and I've heard over a million to even 2.5 million. But I would say on average, about one in four children or 25% of school children in the early grades struggle with reading. Now, of course, these percentages vary widely, depending on the individual characteristics of the student and, of course, the quality of the instruction. But we're going to hear from our special guest today that this really doesn't have to do all about the student or the quality of the education. There's so much more that we have to consider in regards to helping a reader, a non-reader, become a reader. The New York Times even said in an article they wrote in 2022 that the pandemic has certainly worsened the reading crisis in school. So in this episode, I'm welcoming Dr. Joe Lakovich, and we're going to talk about how to turn those non-readers into readers, understanding facts about reading comprehension, and what to do if your child really doesn't like reading and what we can also do to accelerate their reading ability. So let me tell you a lot about Dr. Joe Lakovich, and that is that he's a former classroom teacher, school psychologist, university professor, special education director, applied re reading researcher, as well as an author. He spent the past 30 years training tens of thousands of teachers, parents, and administrators across the nation on how to meet the unique needs of students with chronic reading failure, non-readers included. He is currently the president of Failure Free Reading, an educational publishing and software development firm housed in Concord, North Carolina. And for over 30 years, he's been helping school districts and parents across the nation turn their non-readers into readers quickly, easily, and within a budget. His philosophy is quite simple. We're underestimating the reading potential of chronically failing students. The enemy is not the student, the parent, the teacher, or the administration. The real enemy is the instructional approach and the accompanying materials. So you change the approach, you change the performance outcomes. And I love that because I try in my practice to treat every child and every family individually. And if anything has taught me from COVID, and that is that children all, we all, adults included, learn differently. So thank you so much, Dr. Joe Lakovich, for joining me today. Well, thank you. You, uh, Dr. Sarah, what a what a pleasure that that was um, 
so nice to uh, to have this opportunity to be here with you and and just have a, a casual, candid conversation on on topics that I think um, every parent uh, must know. Uh, and so I look forward to it. And I thought maybe what I'd do is I'd let you start and just uh, start with the question and uh, and and we'll go from there. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate it too. I'm excited because as a pediatrician, I know I feel kind of helpless sometimes because there's certain things that I can do in the office and there's certain things I don't have control over. And I would imagine, and I know our families feel the same way. What I'd like to start with is if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give an overview of what facts you believe parents really need to know about reading comprehension. Okay. Um, the first thing, uh, and, and I'm so glad you started with that because I want to, um, the, normally I'll give a talk and, and a lot of times, uh, when I'm giving a talk, I'll say, um, I'll say reading comprehension, and then I'll ask the question to the audience. And most of them are trained professionals. And I'll say, um, how many words did I just say? How many words did you hear? And and obviously they'd say two. And I'd say, well, you know, you're right. Most people would hear two. But do you know what the leading educational researchers hear when they hear reading comprehension? They actually hear, Dr. Sarah, three words. In their mind, they hear reading and comprehension. Mm. Believe it or not, Far too many approaches are predicated on the notion that reading is separate from comprehension. Now, when I talk, I have to define what reading is by my definition. And reading by my definition is very simple. It's gaining meaning from the printed page. Mm. If a student is simply saying words identifying words with 99% accuracy, but not pausing at commas, not stopping at periods, reading with a monotone, expressionless voice, by my definition, they're not reading. So reading, when you hear me talk from this moment on, is gaining meaning from the printed page. And that's a that's a huge issue right now because a lot of people, when they think reading, are thinking foundational blocks of reading and recognizing words. And if the kid can recognize words, then the kid can read for meaning. And, and sadly, that's not true. And I would imagine um, this starts at a young age. At what point, because I know one of the things that I mentioned in the intro is teaching your child you know, who doesn't really like reading to read. And I know there are some kids who like to read themselves. I had one, I have two boys and the oldest one, he wanted to read, you know, it was, it wasn't me reading. He was the one reading. The second one, I could tell even at age like 15, 16 months, he had a really hard time even just sitting and listening to me read. And and I would say, then I fast forward, and sorry, Ben, I'm throwing you under the bus, but I would fast forward, and he really had difficulty with reading comprehension. So I'm curious to know, 
when do you start, like, when do you think parents can start to get clues that this might be something versus waiting until they're like fifth grade or fourth grade and then out of the blue, they're finding out that their child is is way behind? Well, and that's a very good question. Um, I think um, reading is only symptomatic of a greater problem. So when when we look at reading in Far too many cases, we're treating the symptom as opposed to the disease. The symptom is poor reading. The disease is language development. In fact, if I could share right now a one-word key to to improving the success uh, in reading comprehension of of students of all ages, 6, 16, 66. Would it be worth uh, having your audience listen to me running my mouth? <laughs> I, I, I would imagine that maybe some people would tune it out after a while. But let me give you the one word key for success in life and in reading, vocabulary. Yes. Let me say it again. Vocabulary, 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 vocabulary. Yes. No, the, the, if there's one universal reading research fact, it's this. No student, regardless of age, can read for meaning above their language level of comprehension. And when I say language level of comprehension, I mean vocabulary. If you want to improve the future academic performance of your kids, you expose them to words. Uh, you, you expose them through reading. You expose them through speaking. And in fact, I'll take a breath, but, uh, but the feds did a classic study years ago, but it still holds true today. And at the time of the study, um, they looked at the in the homes, they actually did visitations and looked in the homes of um, four-year-olds. So you'll like this prior to school. And what they wanted to know was it was qualitative in terms of the number and quantitative in terms of the type. And they wanted to know what type of exposure are these students having to language oral language, and more importantly, did it differ um, on the basis of socioeconomic status? In other words, they broke the um, children into three groups of parents, professional parents such as ourselves, blue-collar parents, um, and not in a negative way, just blue-collar income-wise, and then at the time of the study, they were identified as welfare parents, very, very low income. Um, I want to make sure I get my numbers right. <laughs> and I know you're sitting down, but for your audience, I want uh, I, I, I want to make sure that, that they digest what it is I'm about to say. They found that in the homes of professional parents— Four-year-olds were exposed to approximately 48 million words spoken in their first four years of life. Wow. 25, I want, I want to get this right, um, and I may be off a bit, 30 million 
the number in the blue collar. And I think it was 16 million words in the homes of lowest income. And so we're looking at approximately a 35 million word differential in the first four years of life. That's perfect. Where are those kids going to go? And so yes, go I'm ahead. sorry. No, go, go ahead. On. No, go ahead. No, no, you. I was only going to mention that when I hear that, I know as a pediatrician in regards to development, we know that they're neurologically, those first, I always call them the first like five years, that's when they're creating, you know, we call them different synapses. So another way to say it is different connections and yes. they're, they're, their brain is just like a sponge. I mean, obviously we're still learning after that, but those first five years are so important in regards to what I found in habits, like what habits they create later in life as well. So when I hear those statistics, it's very profound. It's yeah, not that it's too take, late, but you no, know. No, it's never too late. Now that now I want to make that statement again. It's never too late. It's never too late. It's never too late. And if somebody tells you that, they're wrong. Yes. It's never too late to accelerate the reading ability of any individual, no matter what the age. Yes. That that's a given. And I dare, dare anyone to prove me wrong on that. No, what I'm trying to say is basically this. Um, you want to know when you prepare your children for school academic success? I'll tell you when I started. I have five children who have now given me uh, 13 grandchildren. Uh -huh. So life is, there are a lot of words that creep into the Lockovich household, <laughs> but dull and boring aren't, uh, aren't two of them. So um, when we had our first child, Tess, um, I started developing her vocabulary in the womb. I would literally uh, talk to, to her while she was in the womb. And I would say, uh, Tess, this is your dad. I love you so much. And um, uh, the word for today is psychology. And I would say psychology means, and, and the reality is, is that I wanted her to be comfortable with sophisticated language from day one. Parents need to be language teachers first, reading teachers second. Language first, reading second. Yes. If you want to set up conditions for success for your child, Talk to them yes. and talk to them as sophisticated language. May I add one more thing? I, I'm a three word person. I love it. Okay. Here, here's, a, here's three words that I know you see all the time because of the profession, but I want to share it with parents. Input precedes output. Let me say it again. Okay. Input precedes output. Now, what that basically means is this. You have to spend your time getting it into the system. But the brain, being what it is, there is generally speaking a six-month developmental lag between what they can come, what, what comes in and what they can express. And many times we believe because they can't express it instantly, 
that it's not in the system. And that's wrong. It's it's kind of like this. Um, we just had a, a very nice topic. We're talking about it right now. And at the end of the session, your podcast will say, well, who'd you talk to? And you say, oh, I met uh, Dr. Joe. Well, was he any good? Oh, good. The guy was fantastic. I learned so much. You couldn't believe how much I learned. And then they said, well, tell me what you learned. And you go, and nothing comes out. <laughs> And nothing comes out. And the reason why nothing comes out is it wasn't that you didn't learn it. You haven't had the time to assimilate it, mm -hmm. to put it into your own repertoire, and you need to put it out. So they just did a study, um, and I, I think it's, uh, I think it was, uh, it was on one of the West Coast major universities, and they found that the uh, the vocabulary of two year olds is one of the strongest predictors for for kindergarten success. I have seen that. Yes, I have seen that. That makes sense. Yes. And language. and here's the thing. Again, for your audience, Dr. Sarah, wouldn't it be great if I could create a a test that I could administer immediately? And on the basis of the results of that test, I could tell you with almost complete confidence, and we'll just talk the business realm, who will be the chairman of the board, <laughs> who will be uh, the vice president, who will be the leader of middle management, all the way down to the foreman and the worker. Wouldn't that be terrific if we could do that? And predict, predict that right from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to know something? That test was done in 1937. Wow. In 1937 by O'Connor. And he took 1180 of the most important words in the English language and gave a vocabulary test. And guess what? The persons that scored the highest did the best. The persons with the lowest vocabulary were the ones that did the poorest. We're a highly verbal society. That means this, like it or not, people are going to judge you the moment you open up your mouth. Hmm. Now, as a former school psychologist and, and, and an administrator of the IQ test, there are two forms of the I, two broad scores that you get. Yes. You get a verbal score, you get a nonverbal score. The nonverbal score has to do with the ability to see patterns, put puzzles together, very, very visual. The verbal is based on general knowledge and ability to articulate and, and, and primarily language. I have individuals, personal individuals in my family. I'll tell you the story. May I? I love stories. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the story. Um, my father-in-law who passed away, and we miss you, Frank. Great guy. He was a um, he was a tool and a die maker. And that's what he did. Highly skilled. He he could he could create dies um that would run um millions and millions of times and could cut them to the precision of a hundredth of thousandth of a, of 
of an inch. That's how skilled. And I'd say to him, I'd say, Frank, how do you do this? I mean, how can you do this? He said, oh, it's easy. <laughs> he said, they tell me what I want. And he says, then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go to sleep at night and I'll lay down. And then I'll, I'll create that die in my mind, which is usually no bigger than the palm of my hand. And he said, and then I'll blow it up in my mind to where it's 30 stories tall. Wow. And then I'll, I'll walk through it. So I have to see what has to be done. Pretty good guy? Yes, Pretty sounds like guy. it, yes. Okay. He would look at me and he'd say, I wish I was intelligent. Oh. I wish I was smart like you. Smart like me. If I'm going to give this guy an IQ test, this guy's got a nonverbal IQ of 180. That's a good score. If that, I mean, you can't do this. But why does he say he wants to be smart like me? Because he's judging my intelligence on my mouth and my ability to speak at a sophisticated level. Yes, that we can't do that anymore. Yes, we've got far too many kids that 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 have a that, that have a capacity to make significant change in this life that don't believe in themselves. And they don't believe in themselves. They see themselves as as losers. They see themselves as and 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 yeah. passion will come in in a little while. Another three that I'm fighting and will will go to my grave fighting. Yeah, I'm fighting what I call the three bad R's in education. Okay. Now you know the three good R's. Right. Reading, Reading, writing, writing arithmetic. arithmetic. <laughs> okay. Let me tell you what the three bad R's are. Retention, referral, and rejection. Okay. Yes. Now, what do I mean by that? Retention. We've got situations where if kids do not pass a supposed reading test by grade three, they are going to be retained. Well, let me share with you a couple of things that people have to understand. Number one, the moment you retain a student, you increase by a factor of 214% that that student will drop out of school at 16 years old. Boom. Yeah. As a former special ed director, the biggest thing we're seeing right now is an a huge increase in the number of kids referred for special needs. And why are they being referred for special needs? Failure in the classroom. So the assumption is if the kid can't do it, who's the problem? The kid. And then the last thing is you've got kids that are coming. I've got five kids. <laughs> when they went to school, they all had B's and A's. All right. How difficult is it for those five kids to go to school every damn day? I would say they probably... It's not too difficult. No, it's not. And yet we talk about motivation. In my in my book, The Failure-Free Methodology, New Hope for Non-Readers, which I'm getting ready to do the second edition, but I talk about this. Um, 
a lot of times people say, well, kids aren't reading because of lack of motivation or failing because of lack of motivation. And my argument is, how much motivation does it need to go into an environment where you're successful? Little or none. Yeah. But you've got kids in kindergarten, first grade, and second grade already who have failed every single day. And they have already dropped out of school mentally by the age of second grade. And they're just waiting for 16 years old to finish the process. Yes. It's not right. And, and not I, right. And it doesn't I have to be it. done. It doesn't have to be done. We're blaming the victim. Right. I'll give you one more because I'm really on a roll now. I love it. All right. Imagine you, you, Dr. Sarah, walking down the road. Okay. And, uh, it's it's a busy day in downtown Cleveland, and you shouldn't have jaywalked, but you did. Okay. And you get hit by a car. Oh no! And you got really hit. So now you're laying down on the road, and you are not. I mean, you're in really bad shape, and you're just saying, "Oh, please help me!" And all of a sudden, in a distance, in a distance, you hear you hear the faint sound of the siren, and you think, "Ah, oh, they're coming." They're coming. And all of a sudden, it gets louder and louder and louder. And then the ambulance arrives. Ready? And you know what they do? They drive over you a couple more times oh, no. and tell you, you shouldn't have been in the road in the first place. It's your fault. Oh, no. It's the same thing that we're doing with our kids. The kids are coming to school, and we're, and, and we're, we're counting on them. Uh, they're counting on, on us to give them an opportunity to show what they can do. And every day they fail. Every day they get beat up. And when it gets too bad, we refer them for, for a problem. You talked, you talked about the concept of neurodiversity. Yes. What that means is this. If there is one universal that you as a pediatrician, Dr. Sarah, and me as a, a, a professional of 50 years know, is that all kids learn differently. Yes, yes. There's no universal. They come in. So my my approach, my program, my methodology, I created it. And I created it not on the basis of RD, which I'll explain in a motion in a moment. I created it on the notion of CS. Now, intervention. Parents trust the schools to give them appropriate interventions. But are they appropriate for the needs of that kid? And a lot of times, 99.9% of those interventions are RD interventions. And you know what RD stands for? No. Remediation of the deficit. Oh. The kid can't do this? Well, we'll spend time and energy teaching them how to do this under the assumption that if they do that, then everything's going to be right. Usually it's slow. It's laborious. It's incremental. I'm based on CS. You know what CS stands for? No. Capitalizing on strengths. Oh, yeah. Every kid in that classroom comes in with weaknesses, but every kid in that classroom comes in on strengths. And you've got kids right now that are sitting in that classroom who are F and D kids that if you change the approach, they'd be A and B tomorrow, not a year from now, not four years from now, not five years from now, tomorrow. 
We're underestimating the ability level of these kids. They don't need slower. They don't need lower. And they don't need less. They need faster. They need higher. And they need more. And now I'll pause and answer any questions you might have. So where does a parent go from here? Um, And because I know... It's, you know, I love how in your bio, it's, this isn't this, I, I, I love the fact that you, the children are not the victims. And, and I know our educators and administrators are, are doing everything that they can. They're with, victims as well. Yes. Because they think they're doing everything they can because of the research. But. And the, the problem that you have is it's like anything else. Imagine uh, imagine if 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 uh, somebody came to you and they said I want the one the one treatment for the cure of cancer and I want you to give it to me tomorrow because I've read that this is the only treatment there should be for the for for cancer. Well, you'd look at them dumbfounded. It don't work that way. Well, the same holds true here. I could take the 12 leading reading researchers in the world, in the world. I can put them in a single room with an armed guard and one exit. And I would tell them that they can't come out until, A, they have a universal definition of what reading is, and B, how it should be taught. And Dr. Sarah, they would starve before they ever came out that door. Oh, no. To say that there's room for improvement is an understatement. And what I talk about all the time is there is reading wars out there, and I'm not going to get involved in that. But you have camps that are 180 degrees opposed to to what one camp says and the other one can't. And they are both wearing blinders with the belief, how could they be so stupid? This is the only way to fly. I don't want to get into that argument. But if I'm a parent and my kid is coming home, not showing noticeable growth, I'm not concerned about developmental delays. You go out on the playground and you can't see, you can't see or notice a dime's worth the difference between my kid and any of the other kids out there. But my kid's getting D's and F and those kids are getting B's and A's. The first thing I'm going to ask is, what's the approach being used? Yes. So how do we help? And is it, and is it capitalizing on my kid's strength? That's all I want to know. I'm not going in to argue. I'm going in, what can we do? And if it isn't, what can we do to get something to tap into my strength as opposed to remediating the deficit? How am I doing? I love it. I love it. I love your passion. And, you know, I I feel it because when it comes to these kids, we know that and many times when I'm... I love how you said in the beginning, there's symptoms, and then there's that that reason, there's that diagnosis, there's that reason why. And a lot of times we are just trying to, to treat the symptoms when we really need to get to the root cause. So how do we, what can we tell parents that are listening who are struggling, you know, ha- or have struggling readers to accelerate their reading ability, their child's reading ability? Well, i uh- the first thing is is let's look at what they can and can't do and 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 then um where are they where are they failing are they failing because they can't recognize words easily 
Um, or are they kids who can recognize words but can't read for meaning? And so they can't relate. And reading is relating. That's another three. You can't read for meaning something you can't relate to. Mm-hmm. Which then gets into the enemy in my research has generally found it's not the student, it's not the uh, teacher, it's not the parent. The enemy is usually the inappropriateness of the text when when we're dealing with the issue of comprehension. Um, There are... There are what we call roadblocks to comprehension, and there's a huge difference between a readability score, a grade level score, and what I call a comprehensibility score. Okay. There are a lot of passages where materials um, may be written by a readability score that counts the number of words in a sentence, the number of syllables in the word, and they put it all together. And then you get out with a first grade score, second grade score under the belief, shorter sentences, uh, less syllables in a word means it's easier to understand. But what I found is that there are a lot of, that's readability, that's mechanical. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of kids where kindergarten and first grade material that parents have and are using with their kids and preschool material is far more sophisticated and far more complex than a lot of fourth and fifth grade material that's better written because the fourth and fifth grade material actually control for the roadblocks that are preventing the kids from reading for meaning. And everything is reading for meaning. So um, what are the roadblocks? Uncommon names, dates, and places. If they can't relate to it, They can't do it. And that's one of the big problems we have with kids that are coming to the United States and learning English as a second language. They're coming in for a totally new culture. So even though they may be able to sound a word out and they may be able to recognize the word, they don't know what the words mean because they don't understand the idiomatic expressions, Mm -hmm. the figurative speech, which are two more roadblocks to comprehension. Awkward sentence structure. What do I mean by that? I'll give you an example. The man drove the car. The car was driven by the man. Both sentences mean the exact same thing. Correct, Dr. Sarah? Yes. Which one will be read easier? Hmm. The man drove the car. The car was driven by the man. The man drove the car. Congratulations. (laughs) And the reason why is it's a simple, active, positive, declarative sentence. So from a syntactic sen- uh, situation, even though you're conveying the same idea, you're using less words in a more understandable format. The man was driven by the car is a passive sentence. You have to change the object action orientation. You have to do all of that in your mind. So there are a lot of preschool stories and things that we're reading to our kids that are written in awkward sentence structure. They're written with names, dates, and places our kids can't easily relate to. They're talking about idiomatic expression and figurative speech when our kids, they're not, many of them are literal learners in a figurative world and they're still confused. Mm -hmm. And the biggest one, I say the best for last, lack of appropriate repetition. Repetition, yes. I'm going to give you another big one. Remember vocabulary, vocabulary, vocabulary? Yes. Repetition, repetition, repetition. For our kids, for every kid's, you have to get, as a parent, you have to get into the notion of creative redundancy. Mm-hmm. How many times can I say the same stupid thing <laughs> without 
giving up or without walking away. We now know that as the literacy level of the individual drops, regardless of age, regardless of age, I don't care if we're, we're talking. And by the way, I've been in maximum security prisons doing the same thing. I've been in places I never want to go to again as long as I live. But it's the same thing. I see the end product. Mm-hmm. I see the end product. You know, you see the you see the two year old and your teacher, uh, uh, second grade teacher for 18, 19, 20 years. You know, yeah, there may be a little dent, but we'll pass it on. I see what's at the end of the uh, at the end of the line. And it ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. But. Um, I have to collect my thoughts. Um <laughs> We were talking about repetition, repetition. Repetition. Yes. So what they found was the lower the literacy level, the greater the number of times a person must see it to build the neural circuits necessary um, to recognize it with what they call automaticity. And automaticity is a phrase that Dr. J. Samuels, the late J. Samuels at the University of Minnesota coined. He, I, I was very lucky to have an opportunity to meet him, talk with him, uh, a great guy. Um, but um, what we're finding now is it used to be in in the beginning reading books, the reading passages that kids were 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 put in, publishers used to have a rule of thumb that if they introduced a new word in a story or in the series, uh, as the rule of thumb, it had to be twenty to twenty five words within that story. The repetition to build in of repetition. that word. Yes. You know what it is now on average? And this is Dr. Frida Ebert's work over at the University of California, Riverside. She did a study. You know what it is? Less than four. I was going to I was going to guess four. But so 25 versus four. It's not enough. Well, it's not enough for our kids. And I would imagine, too, one of the things and again, I'm, I'm not an educator, but when parents come and talk to me about their concerns is that. The children and, and, you know, talking about how they all learn differently and the repetition that's needed, imagine some need more repetition than others. And then instead of, you know, capitalizing on their strengths, I love that CS, what happens is when they're, when they're, when they haven't mastered this level, let's say, the classroom is still moving on, even if that particular child or couple children have not really mastered that. So they haven't mastered this level. And all of a sudden now we have to learn another level and then another, you know, and so I can imagine that that snowballs. And so being able to- Yeah, and again, getting back to comprehension. Yes. Getting back to comprehension, one of the problems is, is the assumption is, is that that there is a, a set sequence that must be followed in order for students to be successful and if they and if they don't get from step a to uh, to if they're stuck on c how are they ever going to get to e uh, and 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 x y and z when in reality a lot of times that's not true uh, a lot of times the sequence is 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 based on the approach being used okay as as opposed to a universal belief that it's the only way to fly sometimes you have to you have to try something differently one of the things in my in my research in my software we're one of the few people that uh that 
control for those variables, no uncommon names, dates, and places, no idiomatic expression, no figurative speech. Um, and the other thing is, is that, again, Eder's, uh, Frieda Ebert's work, a lot, a lot of times people say, well, you can't memorize all the words. Uh, readers will be exposed to 5 million words. One cannot memorize all the words. There's got to be other ways to do it. That sounds good. But the one thing we also find is um, is um, that there's a core body of words. Okay. That that um, are uh, th- that the good news is is that the English language is is highly redundant. That that certain words are used over and over and over and over and over. In fact, uh, a fellow by the name of Edwin Dolch, D-O-L-C-H, University of Chicago in the 50s, and still holds true, went out to look at what are the most frequently used words in the English language. And he found what he called the Dolch 220 word list, which is still being looked at and taught in schools today, and the parents don't know it. It's there, D-O-L-C-H, the Dolch 220. What he found was that if your student masters these 220 words, there was it, the, your your child will be able to recognize 55% of all of the words that they'll see in text. That's the other great. is there's a core body of what we call the 2,000 words, the corpus 2,000. My, I created stories based on those 2,000 words so that kids see it in what, what I call connected text in the most comprehensible manner. No uncommon names, dates, and places. And we use a principle called spaced learning. We, we read one part of the story. I am going to the park. I'm going to the park with my father. I'm going to the park with my father and my mother. So that would be the fir- that's one of our first stories for beginning readers. The next day, they go to the next part of the park and the next part and the next part and the next part. And by the 10th day, they're reading a, a 10 page booklet, many for the first time, all predictable, all comprehensible. So um, it's kind of cool to see it. It to is. To see these kids. Well, again. I know I'm running my mouth, but I got to tell you, people say, well, tell them your story, Dr. Joe. Well, I was a university professor. I was special ed director. I was a school psychologist. Um, and and I went out and I met some of the nation's leading reading researchers and leading educational theorists. And I'd run there to get to to, to get to the front of the row. And, and I was at uh, Greater Boston at the time. My doctor's from Boston University. And I'm sitting there and it's so, so packed, so crowded. And the person gets up there and they start their talk. And and midway through the talk, I can start to hear the, the chairs rustling and things moving. And what I found was while they could tell you what's wrong, they couldn't tell you what to do. Yes. So what I've done is I've spent my entire life creating curricular solutions that allow these kids to demonstrate what they can do. And so I would... 
this was many, many years ago when it was just my wife, my three kids. I quit my job. I had, I had no safety net whatsoever. Uh, I had ugly black and white material. And I would call a school district. I had to make money, but I'd call a school district and I'd say, I'd like to come out to your school and, I, and I'll do it only under two, two conditions. Would that be legitimate, Sarah? Sounds like it. Ask me what the two questions are. What were the two questions? That's a good question. Let me tell you. <laughs> the first is, I want to come into school and I only want to work with the worst kid you've got. Okay. Now ask, what's the second? What is the second question? I'm glad you asked that. If you don't see a dramatic change in fluency, comprehension, and confidence within 30 minutes, I'll walk out the door and you'll never hear from me again. 30 minutes. Wow. 30 minutes. And so I'd sit there with the kids. I'd go through the methodology. I'd set the material. I'd show them what we're doing. We'd read that part of the story. We'd discuss that part of the story. And every time I'd do it, I'd say, too easy, too hard, just right. And in the beginning, they'd say, too hard. I can't do it because mm -hmm. they don't believe in themselves. Yes. I got a call from uh, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s from the assistant uh, superintendent of special education for Bronx, New York. And he said, uh, I've heard about your notorious claim, <laughs> and um, I'm going to call you on it. I want to know, will you come up to the, to the Bronx and, and, and do that with one of my kids? I said, sure. How'd that go? So, so I went, at that time, it looked like war-torn Europe. I was in oh. the South, South Bronx, uh, Lehman High School. And they bring me a kid. He was a ninth grader, African-American, Latino student. I think his name was at that time. I think it was Raul. And I had uh, the superintendent and his team. And I showed them the material that I was about to teach to this sixth grader. Uh, no, ninth grader who had been in special ed, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, came in reading at a first grade reading level. They used intensive interventions. He was a ninth grade reading at a first grade Great reading level. Wow. Okay. So just because he's in, in doesn't mean he's getting what he should get. Yes. So now I said, uh, too easy, too hard, just right. He says, um, too hard. I can't do this. Right. So I said, one of the words in here is... Um, is a company. Have you ever heard of the word a company? And by the way, I said, can you sound it out? And uh, and he says, a company, a company. I said, that's great. I said, what's a company? He said, uh, New York Pacific and Light. <laughs> a company. That's what he heard. That's right. But I said, uh, who brought you? Oh, Mrs. So-and-so. Well, when she brought you, she accompanied you. And a company is just a fancy name to mean you're alongside of someone. Yes. Right? Have you ever seen this word? And uh, we sounded out when we talk in the words acquaintance. Said, no, I've never heard. Never heard. You know what an acquaintance is? No. Well, you know what an acquaintance is? That's just a fancy term for Dr. Sarah A. What's an acquaintance? A friend. A friend. Oh, okay. 20 minutes later, he's reading this exactly as I'm reading. The attorney and her acquaintance 
were astounded at the abundant size of the rock singer's house. The house was large enough to accommodate over a hundred people. Too easy to argue just right. Too easy. Whoa, wait. A <laughs> Who just took it from too hard to too easy and less than 20? Oh, I did. And all of a sudden, you start to see a change, subtle change in body language. Now, Dr. Sarah, this is where it gets sad. Oh, I was hoping. And I've seen this happy. over and over again. Okay. Then I ask him. Now he's a ninth grader. Okay. I ask him, what grade do you think this is? He looks me dead in the eye, and you know what he says? Fifth grade. Oh, yeah, that is sad. I said, no, try again. Try again. You know what he says this time? Fourth. Oh. Try again. Third. I stopped him at second. Okay. And then I said, now let's try it again, only this time let's go up. Hmm. And he said, sixth? I said, no, higher. Seventh? No, higher. Eighth? No, higher. Ninth? Yeah. How's it feel to read ninth grade material? And all of a sudden, the kid that came in was not the kid that left. Dignity, pride, self-respect. We're doing a project now. We're on our second year project. We call uh, tongue cheek. We're calling it project um, uh, project vocabulary. And the North Carolina State Legislature has earmarked a set uh, amount of funds for us to serve. Uh, uh, it's a pilot to serve up to eight thousand sixth, seventh, and eighth grade middle uh, middle grade students. And the ones who are testing at the lowest performing, most are English language learners, most are special ed kids, most are minority, limited English. And uh, one of the things we're seeing, and we've only got the first year on, uh, uh, we put these kids at least one grade level higher than any other intervention. We put them at the too hard level, the point where they say, this is too hard, I can't do it. But what happens when daily, we look at their daily performance and they're getting daily scores of 85, 90, and 100% what we ask them. All of a sudden, you're starting to see kids that start to believe and kids that start to, to change. And we're addressing the disease as opposed to the symptom. I am so proud of the North Carolina legislature for, for earmark, earmarking these funds for us because we know we're on to something now. And, and it, it's just an exciting concept. It's, I, it's, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just kind of hearing that and listening to that and, and know that I, I would imagine that that young man from the Bronx that you had an opportunity, that he had an opportunity to spend with you as time went on, looked forward to going to school instead of dreading it. And I see that a lot. I know, I feel like you and I, Dr. Joe, could could talk all day. And, and Well, help. I've been monopolizing it, and I, I apologize for <laughs> no, that. I, I, I've enjoyed every word. I really have. And it's very inspiring because I do believe that if they if they have the ability, it's that they will achieve and go from this struggling student to somebody who can be very proud of themselves. So I have just two more questions. Sure. Um, and I'll tell you both of them, and, and then uh, we'll wrap up. But one is I want to make sure that if people want to learn more about your programs, yes, 
if you would be willing to share that. And then the second question is, what are some final words that you would like to give to the families that are listening today? Okay. Well, they can always um, uh, go to our website, uh, www.failurefreereading.com. Actually, uh, there's an opportunity for them to actually schedule um, uh, an appointment, uh, an online appointment to talk to us if they have issues. Um, There's no charge for that. And uh, uh, we look forward to that. Um, A lot of times they're going to get me. Uh, because I enjoy doing this. Um, So um, the second question was what, what parting words, what are, what are the final words you would really, whether it's something you've already said or something that you would like to add uh, before we end our time together? Yeah. And this is to the parents. Don't give up. Don't give up. Um, There is no, Reading is not that difficult. Um, Changing the approach, you will change their performance outcome. If you want to give them success for life, it has to be vocabulary. Um, you have to look at the books that uh, that that you do. Uh, they're being asked to do. If they can't, if they're in middle school and they don't fully understand it, read part of it to them. Ask them questions. Um, that's a great way to do it. Uh, don't use the book to reinforce. Uh, don't use the book to introduce new material. Use the book to reinforce something that you've already discussed with them. Talk with your kids, language first, reading second. Um, never up. Your kids don't need slower, lower, and less. Uh, look at the approach being used in the school. Ask them what it is. And, um, and then think in terms of, well, if this isn't working, I've got to find a viable alternative. Not some of the same. You got to get something different. We know we can help you with that. Um you know, I, I developed my, I named my program because I've given this talk that I, dis, that I, um, uh, an example of what I've done when I do the visitations, but I've given this visitation thousand different places across the country under the same conditions. And I have yet to walk out and I've worked with clients who have, I, uh, who are, uh, intellectually disabled students who are on the spectrum, uh, students with behavioral, emotional handicaps, students. I don't buy LD. I never have. Although I was a professor of learning disabilities, I buy LD only in the sense of learning different. different. Um, they're not disabled. They're different. And again, go back to the notion of, um, are they remediating the deficit or are they capitalizing on the strength? If your kid is um, not happy, then you got to find ways to, to make them happy and, and, um, and feel good. About and there them. are answers. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. I know I've learned a lot and some information that I'm going to take into my practice when I share with my families. And I know for a fact that there are parents out there that can resonate and learn. And I'm excited that they've got some tools to go from here. And thank you again for taking the time and uh, sharing your knowledge and especially your passion. Not only can I hear it, I can feel it, Dr. Joe. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Sarah. And you know that for you personally, I'm a phone call away. Um, I want. Uh, I will help you. Um, 
Um, I'm on a mission, and that mission is, uh, you said it in the beginning, I'll say it again, we're underestimating the ability level of of our kids. Um, change the approach, and you will change the performance outcome. They're not the victims. The parents aren't the victims. The teachers aren't the victim. It's It's the system, and there are viable alternatives for those kids. And uh, if you want to accelerate their growth, accelerate their vocabulary. And don't give up. <laughs> and never give up. <laughs> thank you again. And thank you, thank everyone, you. for listening. And let's grow up together. Much of the information that I shared today, I was able to gather from the resources through the American Academy of Pediatrics. I highly recommend looking at aap.org or healthychildren.org for more resources, for more scripted language on how to start these conversations and keep them going. You know, this is a growing time, and Dr. Sarah is here for you. And let's continue, as difficult as days can be, to grow up together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up with Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www.growingupwithdrsarah.com slash contact. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together. <laughs>